Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and back by popular demand, is what I think may become a series, a mini-series here on ACRAC of oral board review examples. So I have brought back uh, our fantastic faculty, both Dr. Steve Beaudry and Dr. Tina Tran, who did a oral board prep podcast with me previously, as you may know if you listen to it. And we're back today to do another because there's been so many people who have written to me asking for more, especially in this season when a lot of folks are preparing for their oral board exams. So first, let me welcome back to the show, Dr. Steve Baudry and Dr. Tina Tran. Thank you, Dr. Wolpaw. It's good to be back. Thank you for having us. All right. So we're going to do the same format that we did last time. So first, Dr. Baudry uh, is going, I'm going to take Dr. Baudry through the exam, through the STEM. And uh, he will give uh, what is going to be a response that will be somewhat, uh, quote-unquote, wrong. or some, with, He'll demonstrate some common mistakes that uh, test takers make while taking the oral boards or while preparing for the oral boards. And then Dr. Tran will go through and give us the correct answer. Now, of course, unlike a multiple-choice question, there is no correct Answer. There are multiple ways to do it correctly, but she will demonstrate a more correct or an example of how the test should be taken with better strategies for approaching this exam, and then we'll make some comments. All right. As you may know, the oral board exam, uh, now we're not talking about the new OSCE portion, this is just the uh, traditional oral board exam, has two two sessions. The first is an intra-op and post-op, meaning you get questions uh, about just the intra-op portion and then questions about the post-op portion. And your second session, you get questions about the pre-op portion and and questions about the intra-op portion. So we today are doing one of the 
second sessions. So there will be preoperative questions and then intraoperative questions. We are not going to do the grab bag, though you on your oral boards will have three, assuming you get to them, you will have three grab bag topics for the last 10 minutes. We aren't going to do that today. We're going to focus just on the main stem. I will now read you the stem, all right? And uh, in real life, what would happen is you would get this stem, you'd have about 15 minutes or so to take notes, and then you would go in for your first session with two examiners. All right, so uh, this is the stem. We have a 58-year-old, 55-kilogram woman who is scheduled for an exploratory laparotomy for ovarian cancer. She smoked two to two and a half packs per day of cigarettes until two years ago. She stopped because of increasing dyspnea and exercise intolerance. She uses nasal oxygen for night sleeping and cannot walk more than 30 steps without severe shortness of breath. Her medications include albuterol and ipratropium inhalers. She has moderate ascites. Her blood pressure is 130 over 85. Her pulse is 104. Her respiratory rate is 18. Her temperature is 37.4 degrees Celsius. Her hemoglobin is 14.8 grams per deciliter. Her ABG on room air is a pH of 7.36, a PaO2 of 54, and a PaCO2 of 46. All right. Dr. Beaudry. Yes, thank you. Thanks for coming mm-hmm. to your exam. Of course. Let's start off in the preoperative evaluation. How would you interpret the arterial blood gases of this patient? So looking at the blood gas, um, she definitely has um, some elevated, uh, an elevated CO2 level. So she's hypercarbic, and I also know that she is hypoxic with a PaO2 of 54. Um, she's obviously a CO2 retainer, most likely because of her longstanding COPD. Okay. And what is the significance of her hypercarbia to her anesthetic management? Well, I think it's important because, um, you know, we will probably give her some opioids for pain control, and that will, that will likely cause some degree of respiratory depression and could probably raise her CO2 even more. Um, her CO2 could also be higher during surgery if they're planning to do anything laparoscopic. I, I don't know if they are, but that would be one thing. And I just may not be able to extubate her very quickly at the end of the case. Um, but you know, I also note that it was done on room air, and she wears oxygen at night. So I would probably even repeat this while she's back on sort of her baseline oxygen. Would you repeat this in the preoperative area? Uh, I certainly could do that. I, I would consider doing it um, since it's abnormal. I, I would probably want to recheck it just to see if it you know goes somewhat back to normal. Would you delay the case to check it? Um, I would talk to the patient about it. Um, it can be a fairly painful procedure, so I don't know that I would necessarily do it before surgery. I'd maybe wait till she was asleep. Uh, plus, I think uh, we don't really tend to do those in the pre-op area where I trained. Um, it's just not part of the, the normal practice there, so I think it would be pretty strange to do it there. Why is this patient not acidotic? I think she's probably just... Again, I think she's probably a chronic CO2 retainer, and so her body has adjusted for that. Um, we could always check a serum bicarb. How does the body adjust for chronic respiratory acidosis? Uh, I believe the kidneys would adjust for that um, by excreting. No, I, I think she would probably end up retaining bicarbonate, um, which, again, we could probably check on a serum 
serum level. You could probably check it. How would you do that? Uh, well, you know, since we're in the pre-op area, we could just send off another lab before surgery. Okay. Would you delay the case for that? Um, not necessarily. I think we could probably just assume that she's a chronic CO2 retainer and just assume that her bicarb is elevated, and I don't think it would really help me necessarily. So, no, I wouldn't. Okay. She receives nasal oxygen continuously. I'm sorry. Should she receive nasal oxygen continuously rather than just for night sleeping? Um, I think since her body's used to that, we should probably do that. Um, And again, as I said, I'd like to repeat the blood gas. Well, actually, no, she'll be asleep when we repeat that, so never mind. Um, I think if she's more comfortable wearing it, that's probably a reason to do it. And uh, I'd also check her um, her oxygen saturation because I note that we don't have an oxygen saturation in our labs or in our vitals. So um, if it was low, I'd probably put her back on her oxygen. Is there any way you can uh, guess what her oxygen saturation might be from her ABG? Uh, well, she looks hypoxic on her ABG um, at 54. I would estimate... Again, I know, you know COPDers tend to live in the 90 to 92% range, so that's where I think she would probably be. Okay. But I, I don't know that. All right. What would be the advantage to her of wearing oxygen during the day for her regular life rather than just at night? Well, at night, I think she's, you know, she could have some degree of uh, hypoxia at night, or maybe she has sleep apnea and she desets. So those are all certainly at risk, uh, put, put her at risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, I think during the day, again, you know, oxygen delivery uh, is an important thing to optimize for her during the day. She's clearly not able to, to do much exercise, so I think she probably just needs to wear it throughout the day. But um, I think it'd actually be important to get her pulmonologist on board. Would there be any benefit to her long-term mortality to wear oxygen during the day? I think so. I, I think it probably reduces her overall um, mortality or morbidity, um, but that's something that I'd have to speak to pulmonology for. I'm not an expert in that, so I'd have to ask them their opinion on that. Would you recommend to her that she use it during the day? Uh, probably. I think it would, yes. I think it probably benefits her more than it, than it hurts, so I, would prob- I, don't see, I don't see a lot of downside to it, so I would recommend that. Let's presume that her last pulmonary function tests were done six months ago. Should new pulmonary function tests be ordered? Considering how bad her pulmonary function is right now, I think I, I would get pulmonology get a, get a pulmonology consult before surgery, and I'd, I'd ask them to perform PFTs. Why would you want that done? Well, this is an elective case, and so before proceeding, I would be more comfortable knowing what her pulmonary status is. Are there AHA or other society guidelines recommending one way or the other whether to repeat pulmonary function tests in a patient like this? I believe the recommendation is six months. That's what I recall from my training. And what specifically do those guidelines include for a patient like this? Uh, I believe they want they would recommend pulmonary function testing for like lung volumes and sometimes they do like split lung testing. You can look at diffusion capacity, uh, you know, her FEV1 over FEC, all those things, which would tell us more information. What were the inclusion criteria for those studies? Uh, chronic, uh, obstructive lung disease, um, maybe, 
chronic bronchitis uh, or severe asthma, but uh, certainly people who have a diagnosis of COPD. Would you get an EKG? Uh, I would definitely get an EKG. Um, I just I would like to know her baseline uh, rhythm. How about I know COPDers can certainly have things like right bundle branch blocks. So that'd be important to know before we proceed. How about an echocardiogram? Uh, I, I do think an echo would be nice to have. Um, if we had time to get it, I, I think I'd ask for one of those as well. Would you delay the case to get an echo? Uh, I, I think I would. Um, I'd like to know what her EF is and make sure she doesn't have anything like aortic stenosis, which could certainly be causing her shortness of breath. Um, the fact that she has really bad exercise tolerance, you know, I'm worried that she could be having an MI or she has unstable angina. So those would be important to rule out. How will an echocardiogram change your management? Well, again, if I knew what her ejection fraction is, I would be maybe more or less likely to give her more fluid or less fluid, uh, maybe use vasopressors if I had to worry about, um, you know, forward flow if she has really bad dilated cardiomyopathy. Um, and I think possibly pulmonary hypertension could be a risk for her. So I'd want to know that because that would that'd certainly be an important thing to know. I would probably change some of the things I would do if I knew that stuff. The surgeon says this is a an really urgent case. She has cancer. Are you going to say that this patient has to wait and potentially end up with meta, more metastatic cancer because she needs an echo? Well, I think the fact that, I mean, there's nothing urgent about this case. She's not uh, unstable in any way. She's not bleeding. So I think the the important thing is that we um, evaluate her heart and lungs uh, before surgery to, in order to know if there's anything we can do better. Um, I, think all, I think also a stress test would actually be beneficial to her. Is there any algorithm that can help you make a decision about whether to order these tests or not? Uh, I believe there are there are definitely pre-op uh, cardiac testing guidelines, and when you go through the algorithm, when you ask about functional status, uh, if the, you really don't know the functional status of a patient like this, um, or if it's really poor and you know that it's really bad, then they do recommend getting a stress test. So based on that, I, I would get a stress test, I think. All right. You want a stress test. The surgeon says this is urgent. This patient cannot wait. This uh, cancer is high risk for met- metastasizing. Uh, they want to proceed with the case now. Uh, I, I would still tell them that it's. I don't think it's a great idea. Um, she needs more workup for her heart and lungs before we proceed with this kind of case because she's very high risk for having uh, cardio- cardiovascular events. So I would. I would tell them I would not do the case right now. The surgeon says he understands that. The patient says she understands that, but they both want to proceed now. Um, I think one thing I could do is talk to one of my colleagues um, to see what their opinion is um, and see you know, if they would maybe proceed with the case, because I, I personally would not feel comfortable going ahead right now. Would any of the tests that you're requesting, a stress test, uh, an echocardiogram, change your management of this patient within the next few days when she has to go have this surgery? Uh, I mean, I think they, they could. I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure if it would change what I would do, but I would certainly feel more comfortable having that information. Let's assume you decide to go ahead with the case. Okay. 
Why does the patient have ascites? Uh, I would assume the ascites is probably from the ovarian cancer, um, but I think it's important to rule out other causes, like from her heart or from her liver. So I think getting an echocardiogram would probably help with that. Does ascites alter your plan for management of this patient? Um, it could cause some issues with surgery as far as just having a, a distended abdomen. Um, I think it probably makes her at higher risk for aspiration during induction. So I would keep that in mind for planning my general anesthetic. Should the ascites be drained preoperatively? I think if we had time to have it drained, it's certainly reasonable to do. That way I would avoid having to do a rapid sequence induction. So I think if we had the time, then I would ask to, yes, I would ask to be drained. Would you delay the case to have it drained if the surgeon wanted to proceed? Um, if they really wanted to go, uh, I would talk to them about the risk. Um, if we had, again, I, I would still, if we had time, I think we could talk to someone in, in interventional radiology or someone who could pro- probably drain it even the morning of surgery and then proceed. But if they really wanted to go, they would just have to be mindful that it, you know, they'll have to evacuate it from the abdomen. Would you give albumin preoperatively? Um, I would probably check an albumin level first before giving anything. Um, if that was normal, I would probably just give her crystalloid on the morning of surgery, depending on how much they took off. Why would you not give albumin preemptively? Um, I'm, I'm worried about her heart and just sort of volume overloading her, and I'm just concerned that giving her too much uh, intravascular anything would possibly precipitate heart failure. If you drained her ascites, would you give her albumin at that point? Yeah, I think I probably the way I've done it before is to give about half of the the volume that they take off back in albumin. But we really wouldn't know that until we were in surgery. So I would be, I'd have albumin in the room. I'd be prepared for that. What medications would you continue or discontinue preoperatively in this patient? Um, I'd keep her on her albuterol and the ipratropium because um, I really want to minimize any wheezing that she might have. Um, but I am also concerned about her heart rate um, being 104. Again, I'm, I'm concerned about uh, coronary artery disease, so I would try to keep her heart rate under about 120 because albuterol can certainly raise that. Um, if she went above that, I would probably treat it with something like Esmolol to get it back down. If this patient is extremely anxious, would you provide sedation? I would be very cautious uh, about giving her any sedation because of her COPD. And I would just explain to her my concerns and try to understand you know, why she's feeling anxious, to see if there's anything I can do to help her or just talk to her. Or, um, I would definitely assure, that, assure her that we would take very good care of her and make sure she's comfortable and asleep during surgery. Let's move to the intraoperative portion. Is a central venous catheter necessary for this case? Um, is it necessary? Uh, I would discuss that with the surgeon. Um, if they felt like a central line was indicated, then I would certainly consider placing probably a right IJ under ultrasound guidance. I would actually prefer just large bore peripheral IVs over a central line. The surgeon defers to you. What will you do? Uh I think if I could get at least a second good IV, I don't think we necessarily need it. Um, 
But if we got into any significant bleeding during the case, I'd have a low threshold for placing one then. Would you place an arterial catheter? I would definitely put an arterial line uh, after she was intubated for blood pressure monitoring. It's certainly uh, helpful to check her blood pressure very, very closely. We can draw labs from it. And one thing, actually, well, we could also put it in a week. Um, but, you know, she's probably anxious. Like she said earlier, she's anxious. Uh, and I could, I could give some local. Um, I think we'd probably, yeah, I think actually we'd do it before she went to sleep. Why would you place an awake A-line in this patient? Um, again, she's at risk for hemodynamic instability because of her her heart disease and her lung disease. Um, plus, I think it would be uh, good to have that on induction because I want to be very careful about induction. So having that before she goes to sleep, I think, is needed. What heart disease does this patient have? Um, I mean, I think we can assume because she has COPD, she probably has some degree of heart disease. Um, she's certainly at risk to have pulmonary hypertension or possibly left ventricular hypertrophy or you know, either, even underlying coronary artery disease. Is a three-lead EKG sufficient for this case? Uh, no, the standard at my institution is five-lead monitoring. Why would you want a five-lead monitor? I believe that's the standard, um, and all of our EKG leads and our, our WIPs in the OR have five leads, so um, I've always used that, and I think it's helpful because um, it will just give you more more monitoring capabilities. And again, she's at very high risk, uh, so I would I would go a five. How will you position the patient for induction? You mean like on the on the to- table? How would you want the patient positioned? Uh, well, she would presumably be supine um, for the case, so I'd start with that. Um, I would give her some sniffing position with some blankets or pillows. She's kind of small stature, so I wouldn't necessarily expect a difficult intubation, but I would put her in sniffing position. I would certainly pre-oxygenate with 100% oxygen for three minutes, and then I'd ask the circulator nurse to apply cricoid pressure while I induced anesthesia. Why would you give her 100% oxygen for three minutes? Um, to pre-oxygenate her and to make sure that she doesn't desaturate when we are um, inducing and then uh, intubating her. Does it take three minutes to pre-oxygenate? Um, I don't know if there's a standard number, but that's typically what, what I do. That's my usual practice. Um, it could be longer, but I would just encourage her to take deep breaths and try to get as much oxygen in her as possible. What is your induction plan? Um, so I would do a rapid sequence uh, induction and intubation here because, as I mentioned earlier, her ascites puts her at risk of aspiration. How would you do a rapid sequence intubation? Um, I would start with uh, a bolus of fentanyl a few minutes before induction, and then I would give sort of the standard rapid sequence lidocaine, propofol, and succinylcholine. Would you be concerned giving a bolus of propofol to this patient? Um, Well, I use propofol because it's rapid acting and it's pretty ideal for rapid sequence because of that. Um, There could be some burning, but I get the lidocaine ahead of time to try to minimize that. You mentioned that you believe this patient has heart disease. Would you be concerned about 
a large bolus of propofol in a patient with heart disease? Um, well, she's hemodynamically stable um, as we're presumably before we got to sleep. Um, so I could just probably titrate it to blood pressure. Um, I would probably mix in some phenylephrine or possibly ephedrine if her heart rate didn't go too high just to keep her sort of in a, a, you know, a slow controlled kind of way. Is ketamine a reasonable induction agent for this patient? Um, I could probably use ketamine. I think it's a, a reasonable choice because it, it also is rapid acting and has some analgesia properties, but I'm concerned about dysphoria afterwards, and since I'm not going to give her any Versed with it, I would probably not give it. Are there other advantages to ketamine in this patient? I think there's probably some opioid sparing because it has analgesia properties. Um, it could make some secretions a little bit worse, though, so I don't I don't feel really strongly about using it, no. How about Atomidate? Uh, I would definitely not use Atomidate because of the risk of adrenal suppression. Why would you be concerned about adrenal suppression? I believe the literature supports that even just a single dose of Atomidate can cause adrenal suppression, so uh, I just... You know, she could get hypotensive, and then, as I mentioned, she's at risk for, you know, cardiovascular issues. So because of that, I, I would not use it. What literature is that? Um, I think I, we read that in Miller. I think as a part of the, our residency, we I certainly read that at some point in one of the major texts, but I, I don't know a study. How will you attenuate the tracheobronchial response to intubation in this patient? Well, I'd want to make sure that she's deeply asleep under GA before intubating her. So because of that, I would give that that large bolus of fentanyl up front, and I would titrate that to respiratory rate and make sure that she's deep enough when I go to intubate her. Um, I think also a, a BIS monitor would be helpful here to gauge sort of her depth of anesthesia. Um, do we have a BIS available? Why would you need a BIS monitor in this case? Well, again, to sort of know where she is uh, as far as depth of anesthesia before intubating her. So I, I probably would use one if we had one available. The BIS monitor is being repaired. What will you do to make sure you attenuate the tracheobronchial response to intubation? I mean, I think other than giving that fentanyl up front and some lidocaine, I mean, one thing we could do before, actually before we did this part, was to give her albuterol. So... Um, if we're already, though, to this point, I think one thing we could do since she's, if she's apneic is to turn on sevoflurane, uh, which is a very potent bronchodilator, and give her a couple of breaths through the, um, through the mask, through um, you know, just, just bagging her a couple of times just to try to get that in and, and bronchodilate. Is it important to attenuate the tracheobronchial response to intubation? Um, I think it is, but so long as we're able to intubate her, I think we can treat whatever happens after that point. Immediately after induction and after tracheal intubation, her peak inspiratory pressure increases to 50 centimeters of water. What is your differential? Well, peak pressure of 50 is quite high. Uh, It could be due to a lot of things. I would first listen to the patient and determine if she's wheezing, which again would indicate bronchospasm. Um, I would increase my volatile agent at the same time just to make sure that she was getting under deeper anesthesia. Other things could include um, a main stem intubation, maybe mucus plugging, so I would suction out the tube pretty vigorously 
and then um, this could also be anaphylaxis, but I, I don't know that yet. How would you distinguish bronchospasm from endobronchial intubation? Um, well, I don't think you would have wheezing with endobronchial intubation, and you would likely have diminished breath sounds. Um, so I would check the tube depth just to make sure that we are at a, um, a normal tube depth at the teeth. But I'm also thinking that um, you know she hasn't been moved. No one has really moved her around or touched the tube. So I, I really, I would highly, I'd be really suspicious that this is not mainstem. How could you differentiate tube obstruction or endobronchial intubation from pneumothorax? Um, she certainly could have a pneumothorax. Um, I would consider getting a chest X-ray at this point to sort of rule out my suspicion, and we could get that stat. So it should come pretty quickly. Um, and then if the chest x-ray showed a pneumo, then obviously the appropriate treatment would be needle decompression of the chest. Is there any way in the meantime to differentiate whether this could be endobronchial intubation versus a pneumothorax? Um, yeah, so I would pull the two back. Usually you can pull it back at least a centimeter. That's sort of standard. So I'd pull that back and then I'd take a listen to see if the breath sounds became bilateral. Um, she would probably be a bit tachycardic or possibly desaturate if she had a pneumothorax. So if those things weren't there, I would assume it's probably mainstem intubation. You examine the patient and you hear bilateral wheezing. How will you manage this? Um, so as I said before, I would turn up the volatile agent um, as high as it could go, and I would, um, I, would, I would bag the patient through the endotracheal tube to try to drive that in. Um, other things we could do are to give some propofol. Um, I believe that's a bronchodilator, so we could certainly do that. Um, and then I would hook up that uh, that adapter for albuterol to the to the tube, and I would high, you know, turn up the flows to 100% oxygen, and I would squeeze in probably eight or ten puffs of albuterol to try to drive that in. How would hypotension affect your management or your plan for management? Um, in this setting with bronchospasm and hypotension, it suggests probably a pretty severe bronchospasm and, um, although possibly anaphylaxis, I guess that's also in the differential. So, um, I would probably, I would, I would deepen the anesthetic further with propofol, um, treat it with some phenylephrine as well. Uh, I would, I would call for help just to see if there's anybody else who could help out, um, and then possibly think about epinephrine. What if both hypotension and decreased end tidal CO2 are present? What would you think is going on? Um, I would call for help because this seems like an emergency. She's unstable. Um, this could be a PE. So that's one thing you can think about. Although you know, she has cancer, that's certainly a risk factor. Um, I would think about bringing her to CT possibly for an angio just to rule out PE, but in the meantime, um, I still don't know this maybe could be anaphylaxis or bronchospasm. Um, I think at this point, well, does she have a pulse? Is the heart rate okay, blood pressure? Or is it she's hypotensive? It is. Okay. Um, then I think probably large, larger bolus is a phenylephrine, and if that didn't work, then I would go with um, baby epi. What is baby epi? Um, it's low dose epinephrine that you drop beforehand. Um, so I would 
you know, it's easy to give like 10 micrograms at a time. So I would, I would probably give her like 10 mics of Epi right now. Is a nitrous narcotic combination a good choice for your anesthetic for this case? Um, I think she certainly needs some narcotic for pain control. So I would certainly give that nitrous. I think because of the, the vomiting factor would probably not be good because she's going to have abdominal surgery and she's probably, you know, not feeling well already because of her ascites and everything. So I would avoid nitrous, um, because I don't want her vomiting a lot afterwards. And it's possible that if she had a pneumothorax, that that could make it worse by expanding it. So I would, I would probably not do it. Is an insoluble inhaled anesthetic preferable to a moderately soluble anesthetic? Um, I think they're all relatively soluble, but I would avoid desflurane because it's pretty it's a it's an irritant to the airway, and I don't want her coughing or bucking during the case. Um, I think isoflurane is also a good choice. It's a bronchodilator, but I would probably stick with sevoflurane because it's faster. What would you use for muscle relaxation? Um, so I would continue with, um, VEC. Why? Um, it's, well, it's, it's affordable. It, uh, it works pretty, it's long, it's sort of when he's moderate acting. So, um, it will last, um, during the case, but it won't last too long. And I know I could probably reverse it at the end. Um, and I don't, she doesn't seem to have any renal dysfunction or liver dysfunction that I know of. So I think it should be okay to use. Would ventilation settings with a tidal volume of 550 mLs, a respiratory rate of 16, and IDE ratio of 1 to 1 be appropriate for this case? Um, I think the settings are reasonable. I would probably increase her IDE ratio from 1 to 1 to 1 to 2 or 2.5 or 3. Um, That's typically what we would do for COPD patients. Why? What's the advantage to doing that? So I want her to have more time to exhale, and I don't want uh, her to retain CO2. So because of her COPD, I think that's probably the way to go. The, I mean, the other option is to also increase her respiratory rate to try to drive off her CO2 and get it back to normal. 45 minutes into the case, her ABGs are a pH of 7.41, a pCO2 of 52, and a PaO2 of 202. Please interpret. Uh, So the pH is normal, so she's not either acidotic or alkalotic. Her CO2 is elevated. Again, it's it's above her baseline, so I think I'm probably not um, ventilating her enough. Um, Again, I would probably do those same changes I mentioned earlier as far as increasing her Respiratory rate um, could increase the tidal volume a little bit as well to try to get it back closer to normal. But you know, since the pH is normal, I'm not really so worried about that. What if her PaCO2 was 65 and there was bilateral wheezing? So it's concerning for again more you know COPD exacerbation or possibly still that bronchospasm that she had earlier. Um, I would give more albuterol through the endotracheal tube. And I would make sure that she was really deeply asleep um, by increasing the volatile agent, uh, knowing that um, you know if she's light, light anesthesia can certainly cause bronchospasm. So I would, I would do all those things. Does early extubation minimize the risk of recurrent bronchospasm? I believe it does. 
Um, and I would want to really make sure that she is, um, uh, you know, not wheezing anymore. Make sure her her PaO two is back to normal, um, and that she's super wide awake. Um, I would just make sure that all the age, all the volatile agent is gone. Make sure she's can follow commands. She's strong because I want her to be able to protect her airway. Would you rec- Would you recommend overnight post operative ventilation for this patient? Um, I would talk to the surgeon about that because I think I would keep her intubated if she had, say, large blood loss or if we had to give her a lot of crystalloid or, or blood products or if she was unstable during the case. The um, surgeon says that's your job to decide. Do you want to keep her intubated or not? Well, then we'd have to go to the ICU and we'd have to get her an ICU bed, um, and that takes time. And usually the surgeons would help with that, so I would let them know that I'm thinking about it to see if they could help. Are you going to extubate her or not? Uh, I would think about it if all of the other criteria were met and I didn't have any more concerns, then I probably would, yeah. Let's assume that you do not extubate. You keep her intubated, you go to the ICU, and the next day when you're preparing to extubate, the pulmonologist recommends that you use no supplemental oxygen to avoid depression of respiratory drive. Do you agree? Well, she came in on oxygen already, and that wasn't suppressing anything. Um, her, PA2, her PAO2 on room air was quite low starting off, so um, I think I would probably give her oxygen sort of back to her. I, I would give her her baseline oxygen and just kind of go from there and see how she tolerates that. What would be your oxygen saturation goal for this patient? I would say, again, close to her baseline. If she was 90 to 92 to start, uh, I don't want to cause hyperoxia because that can be a problem. I know it causes free radical damage, uh, and we tend to avoid that in the OR. So I would titrate to her PaO2 sort of close back to her baseline. Thank you, Dr. Beaudry. Thank you. All right. So we are – that's the end of the exam. At this point in the real exam – I would go on to give the grab bag questions, but we're going to stop, and we are going to uh, ask Dr. Beaudry, take us through some of the things that you purposely did that you would, would recommend people don't do. Sure. So I, I think it's, it's important to emphasize again that there are very few absolute right and wrong answers for this test. It's mostly a gray area test, but it's designed to be that way on purpose, to put you in an uncomfortable situation. Um, you have to be forced to make decisions with incomplete information. But this is the reality. This is what we do every day. And so the test is supposed to reflect everyday reality. So that's what they're trying to get at. Uh, from a stylistic standpoint, I, I did a lot of things that I tend to uh, get from, from trainees. And it's certainly not uh, a terrible thing, but it's something to work on. So things to, to avoid or things um, to think about when you're taking the test. Uh, I did a lot of maybes or could or possiblys. I would think about, I would consider, uh, you have to be very definitive with your, with your response. Um, I think it's okay to say I would consider X, Y, and Z, but eventually you have to make a decision. So um, I was waffling a little bit, and usually this comes out of a place of not wanting to be wrong. But again, it's not about being right or wrong. It's about giving a reasonable response. Um, I, I asked questions which you have to be very careful to do. You don't want to ask a lot of questions, especially if a test doesn't exist or you don't have the information. And I said, what's the potassium? And then the 
the way that it would be framed is, well, did you want a potassium? You didn't ask for that. So right. um, asking questions or things like, um, you know, well, what's the heart rate? What's the oxygen saturation? There are ways to say that without there are ways to ask the question without directly asking a question. So, so give me an example. How, how might you ask for the heart rate without asking for the heart rate? So instead of asking, I would say, well, I would look at the monitor and assess the heart rate and rhythm and the blood pressure to ensure the patient was hemodynamically stable. Assuming that the heart rate was X, Y, you know, whatever it is, then I would proceed. So it's a way of asking for information without directly Right. I completely agree. I think that they're testing your reasoning. So if you say, assuming that the heart rate was normal, I would do such and such, then that's fine. They're going to judge the reasoning you used. And if they want you to tell them what reasoning you would use if the heart rate was abnormal, they will then say, what would you do if the heart rate was 140? Right. And you so, should be prepared for that. Exactly. Yeah. But you are exactly right. I think that's a great way to do it. What else? Um, don't assume that she has disease that hasn't been verified. Um, I went into this assuming that she had some horrific underlying cardiac disease, which she could, but there was no information. Um, but everything I did was sort of based around that. So you, again, you have to be careful. Again, you could say it's possible that because of her long-term smoking and cardiovascular or pulmonary disease, she could have underlying cardiovascular disease, but don't give her a disease that she doesn't have yet that hasn't been verified. Yep, Absolutely. Uh, another thing I noticed that you did is uh, when asked what your differential was, you um, started saying what you would do correct, and mixing in some things you thought were going on. Uh, tell me a little about that. What, why do you recommend people don't do that? Yeah, uh, part of this, I think, is uh, people get coached different ways on how to respond. Um, I think so long as the information comes out, I think the way, the sequence you give it doesn't really matter, but it has to be organized. Um, so, for example, when the peak airway pressures went up, I immediately jumped to what I thought was bronchospasm, and I was doing a bunch of different things, but you asked me specifically what my differential was, and I didn't give it to you. Right. I gave it to you in pieces as sort of the way I thought things would unfold. Um, again, some people would recommend giving a, a large differential up front, and then once I start rattling those things off, a lot of times the examiner would, would cut me off and say, okay, what are you going to do about it? Right. Because I've given the common things that you're all thinking of, and now they want to know, what am I going to do? But I was trying to suction the tube. I was deepening the anesthetic. Also, just not in the context of the whole thing. So I didn't ask about or I didn't evaluate the rest of my monitors. Maybe I never put the ventilator on and she was coughing and bucking. You know, That's why the peak airway pressure, who knows? So, But because I didn't say it, it didn't really happen. Right. And I think the mistake people make, there are points they're going to give you for your differential. If you say, I think this is bronchospasm, this is what I would do, you never get anything beyond that one point on your differential. So it's really important to listen to the question and answer the question that was asked. Yeah. And I think by verbalizing your differential out loud, I think it helps you to sort of think about your action plan. So it could be a, a, a tool for you on the actual test if you get it all out up front there are things you won't necessarily forget and you right. can move on from there. Uh, and and I, you know, a couple other things. Um, my responses were not really based on clinical judgment, more so in the sense that I wanted to be comfortable. And I said that a few times. Uh, I would be more comfortable if we had an echocardiogram. Well, that'd be great if we had all the tests in the world. Maybe you would be more comfortable. But the, the reality is you're going to have incomplete information. You're not going to have a completed picture for most, most cases like this. So um, just giving a rationale or not giving a rationale for a test is uh, really a bad idea. <laughs> so yep. any test, any study you get, 
you have to tell why you're giving it or why you're getting it and how it's going to change your management. Right. And clearly I pushed you significantly uh, to say the surgeon wants to go, the patient wants to go. Um, how would you, all these tests you want, how would they change your management? You couldn't give a good answer other than that you felt uncomfortable, and that's not Correct. a good reason. Correct. Correct. And um, a couple other, la- just the last couple of points, uh, we asked about pulmonary function test guidelines, and I basically made them up because I thought I knew them, um, and that's a big no-no. So, so what should you have done instead? I should have said that uh, I don't know if there are any explicit guidelines for pre-op pulmonary function tests, um, and I would consult them if, if this was a real case. So I would uh, look at the guidelines, but at this point, I don't recall them. And that's right. exactly what I would say for the test. Yep. And I think you can make stuff up. Exactly. I emphasize this to learners all the time. It's fine to say, I don't know. It's yes. fine to say, I don't know. It's not fine to make things up. The examiners will know you're making it up, and that is not going to do gonna be what good, a good idea for you. You want to be able to either give them the answer that you know is correct or say to them, I don't know. I'd have to look that up. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. You also said many times, uh, well, what I did when I was a resident or mm. what we do at my institution or what I'm used to doing is, so tell me about that. Yeah, and that's a common thing. And again, most of the time, um, people only know the way they were trained, right? They know how to do a particular case a certain way because that's how they were taught. And and that's that's reasonable. The way you could say it on the actual exam is, you know, my typical practice is to do a carotid uh, under general anesthesia. I do recognize that in some institutions you could do it under regional anesthesia with minimal sedation, uh, and that could be advantageous for a particular reason. Um, but typically, I would not. And that's a you know you've at least recognized there are other ways to do a particular case. You are the way you have done it in the past, the way you're comfortable doing it is a particular way. Um, but to just say that's how I was trained or that's how we did it in my institution is not going to fly. So you have to give rationale for why you're doing what you're doing. And you know, I encourage you know people that I work with, my my residents and fellows, to think about. Yeah, I know we're going to do this case the same way. We've done it a hundred times this way because that's how we do it. But what if we did it under a spinal or right. did something else? And it it helps you at least appreciate that there are other ways to do things, and it gets you to think about even if I'm going to do it the same way, maybe if we did something different, what would the implications of that be? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and you definitely want to that you're being tested on whether you are a consultant whether you're somebody who can say this is what we should do not well this is what i've always done exactly exactly and then the last point i wanted to make was uh, about the pre-op cardiac testing um there are certainly guidelines and i i gave you a piece of the guidelines but i didn't give it to you in the whole context about evaluating the patient's risk for perioperative cardiovascular events um i talked about her functional status and because her functional status was poor the algorithm says to get a stress test. But truthfully, you have to think about the whole patient and interpret the whole uh, the question in context. Uh, I never, you know, other than just putting my, digging my heels into the ground with the surgeon saying, well, we're not going ahead until we have this, uh, I didn't have a conversation with the surgeon or the patient about my concerns, and I didn't say how it was going to change my management. And again, that it all, it all comes back to that. I didn't say how if she got cath and stented, how would that change what I do? Right. Absolutely. And it is, uh, you definitely don't have to know every guideline ever written. I think the 
non-cardiac surgery pre-op cardiac testing guidelines are probably something worth knowing uh, for this for this exam. And uh, saying that a poor functional status means a patient has to have a stress test it does not uh, mean you it is not correct according to the guidelines. There's more information you would need to take into account. So making sure you know those is important as well. Absolutely. All right. So I think um, actually because of time and file size, we're going to wrap up this episode here and then we're going to the immediate episode to follow which i'll post at the same time is going to be uh, dr tina tran going through and doing the correct uh example or a correct example of how to answer this question so uh we'll be back with that in just a minute uh dr Beaudry, thanks so much for taking us through uh an example of how, how not to do it thanks for having me all right, that's it for this uh, part of this episode. As I said, we will continue uh, and hear the rest of it uh, immediately after on the next uh, episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, check out the website, acrac.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. You can leave a comment. Um, I would recommend listening to both this and the um, part two episode that will come immediately after. And then leave comments. Let us know. How do you um, feel about oral boards? How's your preparation coming? How are you studying? Other people who are studying could learn from you and may like your tips and tricks as to what you're doing. Uh, so do all that by leaving comments on the website. You can, of course, get a hold of me at acrac at acrac.com. If you are a fan of the show, check out the show on iTunes where you can leave a comment and a rating, which really helps others find the show. And, of course, if you'd like to uh, help support the making of the show, you can become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C where you can donate. Even just a dollar or two makes a big difference to the making of the show, and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Good luck if you're out there studying for your oral boards. I hope it goes really well for you. For Doctors Beaudry and Tran and for the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.